and welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, those producers, directors, writers, actors, cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, sound mixers, sound editors, VFX wizards, um, just every composers, you name it, we talk with them. Last week, we had a real treat. Composer Matt Hutchinson was with us talking about uh, Your Lucky Day. Well, it's going to be Your Lucky Day again this week because we're going to have the editor of not only Your Lucky Day, but the, but the, Nick Cage's new film, Butcher's Crossing, uh, Nick Pizzillo is going to be joining us at the midpoint of the show. And I cannot wait to speak with Nick. Um, it's a real treat to have an editor join us live, just as it was to have a composer last week. And to talk, be able to talk about such two distinctly different films. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, we're supposed to have now at the top of the show... Uh, actor and director Aaron Murtaugh calling in. So far, he has not joined us. So we may be taking... I need to get Pam, you know, emails just so that she can email these publicists uh, instead of me trying to talk uh, and email or text publicists saying, where is your talent? Uh, so we'll try and find out uh, what has happened with Aaron. Uh, it's, it's a really unique, uh, short film called Man Baby that he has done. It's currently on the festival circuit and it definitely has a creepy thriller vibe. So I am looking forward to speaking with him about the short film. Now, as a reminder, we have to say it, our beloved LTC, all natural beef jerky sponsor, um, I have to get more jerky for myself from Marcus. But if you're in the L.A. area, don't forget, you can get it at Mom's Bar at 12238 Santa Monica Boulevard uh, in Los Angeles, 90025. It's one block west of Bundy. Um, it's a great bar. It's not my bar. I go to the sister bar and grill of backstage in, Cul in the heart of Culver City. Uh, I only get jerky if Marcus brings it to me. Um, they don't have it there. That's special to moms. Or if you're in Colombia, yes, the country of Colombia, you can get LTC all-natural beef jerky there. I know. Who'd have thunk it? All right, Pam, what should we do? It seems the phone system may have gone down. Okay, well, now we have a problem. So, Pam, we're going to go ahead. We're going to run a clip. We're going to run my pre-recorded interview with Neil Berger, director of The Marsh King's Daughter. Neil Berger, you know his work from Divergent, Limitless, The Illusionist, The Upside, which I dearly love with Kevin Hart. Now he directs The Marsh King's Daughter based on Karen Dion's book, written by El, uh, Ellie Smith 
and Mark Smith. Stars Daisy Ridley, Garrett Hedlund, Gil Birmingham, and Ben Mendelsohn in one of the most chilling roles of his career. It is a beautiful film. It is a pot boiler. Um, Take a listen as Neil and I dive into The Marsh King's Daughter. Are you there, Neil? I am. Hello. How are you? I'm fine. It's so good to talk with you again. The last time we chatted was for the upside. Oh, my God. Right. Oh, that's right. I, I can't tell you how thrilled I am with The Marsh King's Daughter. Oh, thank you. I was riveted beginning to end with this film, Neil. Spellbound. So great. I'm so happy to hear that. Your casting of Daisy is as Helena is pure perfection. She's got a quiet intensity that she brings to the character, very methodical, determined. But then she's got an air of insecurity that's unsettling. And it makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, especially as we get into Act 2 and ultimately Act 3. Very observational how you and your cinematographer, Alwyn, how the two of you shot this and really build with this observational quiet sensibility i am just uh, i just love this and you surpassed my expectations because i had read the book oh good well it that noting that sort of observational quality was really the way we did want to approach it and um and it was I, I kind of wanted to approach the story almost like it was a true story mm-hmm. and sort of watch these characters and see how they behaved and, you know, see what it was like to to truly be them, even if we were fictionalizing it, almost just to treat it like it was based on reality, which, you know, obviously it's inspired by it, but it is a fiction story. So, yeah, it's just sort of, I, I think that that's, you know, just to see somebody in their kind of, you know, in their real humanity and how they how they are with whatever all the baggage that they that they have in their life i love how you took that approach and you maintain it and you also keep us in helena's pov even as a young child and then as an adult but you set up a very distinct contrast between the worlds and i'm really curious about your conversations and how you and alwyn who you've worked with before how you came up with this design because of the color differentials, the texture of the woods. Then we come into Helena as an adult and things are lighter, brighter. But then we start getting darker. But then as we go into the marshland itself, then it's very golden. There's greens and golds filled with nature. And it's really striking to watch the visual tonal bandwidth as it develops. Oh, good. I'm glad you noticed all that because it's obviously it's all part of it's all designed that way. And, you know, in the beginning of the movie, you know, young Helena feels like she's living in a, you know, a Garden of Eden. And um, and we didn't want to we weren't trying to sentimentalize it, but we were trying to kind of kind of uh, get the idea, represent the idea that she was in kind of complete harmony with nature, that she was kind of at one with the universe, as it were. That's the way she felt. They were, um, they were just sort of their most authentic selves in the world, in nature. And, um, and that nature was beautiful and, um, 
but also potentially dangerous. And so, and that just, they, they didn't have, they were not judgmental about either one of them. There was like, they were, they loved the beauty and they respected the danger. And so I wanted the filmmaking to do that as well. And then as you say, when she's an adult, she's a bit of a fish out of water. I mean, she's more than that. She's like an alien mm -hmm. she's in an alien world. She's been thrust into this world, forced into it, and she's has decided that she's going to survive it. But she's not, you know, she's not herself. She's taken her past and she's put it in a box and she's buried it. She's hidden it away. She has a secret. And so, you know, she's li living this kind of lie in a way. And so visually, it's like, well, what does that feel like for her? Again, it was all rigorously from her point of view, how she saw the world. Um, and then, as you say, when she goes back into the, to the wilderness at the end, she's summoning all of that, all of those sort of lessons, if you will, and that understanding and that experience from her childhood and sort of bringing it all back up to, you know, to do what she has to do. And um, and again, that also influences the you know the way that the the film looks and the way we you know our camera work and all the rest of it. And I have to compliment you guys on going with those drone shots or aerial shots, giving us the lay of the land with the river, with the cliffs, and then the panoramic shots of the marsh itself, with the sun setting in the back. I just stunning, absolutely oh, gorgeous. So we really feel the beauty and the connection of the terrain, of the topography, and it works so well. Good, I'm glad. Going with the closed up, the fear, you know, of Helena, got to give it to your costume designer, Ann Dixon, constantly keeping Helena in long sleeves so we don't see the tattoos. She's covering everything up. Turtlenecks. That's right. I, that was so clever to do that and so important for the character. Yeah, yeah, well again, she's hiding. Um, she's hiding herself. And um, and so, yeah, she's, she's as an adult, she's always just covered up, she's embarrassed. She can't, you know, she can't get rid of all those tattoos and it's too late and, you know, when she was, a, she had them when she was a child and I'm sure that was humiliating and embarrassing to have those. And she, um, she's learned to just kind of hide herself yeah. With clothing and with her story and everything. It, we really feel her fear, her apprehension. And this is where your work with, with Naomi Garrity as your editor. You and Naomi do a beautiful job collaborating on editing. And here, the way that we go from essentially patience as a child you know, you're letting the camera linger and the, the film is moving patiently until we get to that one point with the ATV and mom and off we go. And then slowly you're building apprehension into, into bona fide fear and tension and it becomes palpable. How difficult was it for you and Naomi to straddle that line and incrementally take us from patient observation into downright fear. Yeah, no, that that is exactly the the sort of the, the the puzzle that had to be solved, and the and the calculation, if you will, of of you know, for me, 
um, the best thrillers are ones where the characters are the best, where the, where you're invested with the characters, where you understand the characters, where you feel for the characters um, the most. And so for me, the, you know, Helena's character outside of the thriller, if there is, if it does really work that way, which it doesn't, but it was important to explore her life and who she was. And, and so then it's like, how much do we need? How much do we need to observe her, who she is, how she behaves in this world, um, you know, to, to sort of activate the, the, the thriller, if you will, the suspense. Um, and so that was always a, a kind of um, a, a, ba a balance, obviously, with, and working with Naomi, who is, got, is, is, is so sensitive to character and to story, so smart about story. Um, she's an incredible cast collaborator. We've done, it, I don't know, at least seven films together. <laughs> and um, we, we just, you know, we finish each other's sentences and um, we uh, have a real shorthand. And so... But it took some experimentation to figure out, like, do we need this? Do we need to, or do we need some more? Do we need to really understand what she's, what she's going through? Mm -hmm. I love the pacing, and I love that incremental build. Um, you don't just hit us with fear. You yeah. really build it. It's a real pot boiler as things start cooking. But, of course, as with any film that has a quote-unquote antagonist or villain... You couldn't have done any better than Ben Mendelsohn here. He scared the bejeebus out of me. He's a scary guy. <laughs> <laughs> he's actually a sweetheart, but he's um, but he does have this ferocious energy. He is like a caged animal in a way, and he brings that to this role certainly. And he, I, I mean, you're so there's nobody that could have played that part better because actually in the beginning of the movie there's. He's very empathetic. He's yeah. Very, um, you like him, quite frankly. She's devoted to him, and there's no reason for us not to like him either. Even, you know, we get he's a harsh taskmaster, but he's also fair, and, um, and, and we can appreciate that. And it's only as the movie goes on that we slowly reveal, um, you know, more and more about, you know, the truth of of who he is and what kind of person he really is. Not giving away any spoilers here, but the third act, and I know you know what the image that I'm thinking of as Helena is going through the marsh, I almost jumped out of my skin. When, when, right. Yes. You know I like that image. Yeah. <laughs> that, that moment was just, it was shell shock. It was. Well, you know what you, what it, I'm sure you did notice because you seem very perceptive about all this. But you know, quite a way before that, the music dropped out of the movie. Yes, there's no music in the in the movie um, for I don't know uh, eight minutes before. Oh, that easily or like that. I'd have to check the exact timing of it, and it just becomes sound effects. And in a way, what I wanted to do was really score the movie at that point and other points as well but at that point in particular with sound effects so that in a way the sound effects perform like a like a you know a musical score in the sense of you know creating tension or releasing tension or whatever and um but all done with like you know sounds of insects or mm -hmm. of frogs or of birds or of rustling grass in the wind or etc and that's what kind of builds it up so everything sort of quiets down and then 
you know, builds to that moment. I'm glad you brought that up because the meld of Adam Bozowski scoring with your sound design is just impeccably done. And so much of that is because of you're putting us in tune with nature with the sound effects and with no score. And so many people seem to forget that when you strip away a score and you have silence or just the ambient sound of crickets and bugs and sloshing mud, that is a lot more powerful than to have a musical undercurrent. Nature can be scary. I, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think it makes it much scarier and weirder and also like brings you really into the moment, you know? Talk to me about the score that you did, the musical score that you had that you then layered in the actual sound effects of nature because I found it to be very purposeful and yet haunting in earlier parts really, of the film. For me, what was most interesting about it and where we started from was in the beginning when she's a child and there's that first scene where we see her hunting and and tracking and um, it, it um, there's, a, I, I kind of wanted to get this sort of sense of like, I don't know, just sort of this existential quality of of their lives, that they were sort of like, you know, they were just, as I said before, they were like at one with nature. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, I wasn't interested in that in a sentimental way, but more in like, again, it's like some of it's, some of it's beautiful and some of it's dangerous. And that's life and they're okay with that. And so I was like, what does that sound like? And I didn't want it to be like a symphonic score because, again, I felt like that sort of sentimentalized thing. I just wanted it to be like, you know, existentially powerful. It's like the mystery of existence, basically. They're like right in the mystery of existence and like okay with the mystery of existence. And so what's that sound like? And so we sort of developed these, kind of, you know, I gave Adam these sort of examples of music that I, and he distilled them in such an interesting way where you can't quite put your finger on what instruments are being played yeah. necessarily, but they have this sort of ringing, dreamy feel to them that I thought was beautiful. And they, and they also kind of interacted, as you said, with the sound effects, um, is I think a kind of a powerful, uh, uh, result. I, I have to ask about casting this film because your casting is so impeccable with Daisy, with Ben. Gil Birmingham always elevates everything he's in and adds a great calming and the adult is in the room kind of aspect to things. Yeah. And of course, Garrett. But a real standout is also Brooklyn Prince as the young Helena. You know, how challenging was putting this cast together and getting such a great mirroring between Brooklyn and Daisy with the emotional tonal bandwidth that they bring? I know, I'm still feeling like immense relief that we were able to get such a good cast because, you you know, casting is everything and if you don't have the right people, it just, you know, doesn't matter what you do, how, you know, what interesting things you do with the camera or whatever it is, it's like... So anyway, we had great people, and Daisy has got you know such sort of a mystery to her, which is so perfect for somebody that's hiding, you know, that mm-hmm. has a secret. And Ben, as we talked about, has such a ferocious nature. And then Brooklyn, kind of playing the young Helena, the young Daisy, um, you know, in a way, she's like 
playing a wild animal in a way um, who and Brooklyn has kind of just this sort of such great energy and such kind of an understand like an emotional intelligence that she's explosive in her own way and fearless as a 10 years old when we shot it just absolutely fearless I suppose as a 10 year old would be um, <laughs> but fearless but in control of her of her performance of her instrument um, you might say and um, so exciting to watch and like such a delightful young person um, to kind of to hang out with truly um, and then as you said Gil has such an essential goodness to him which was so critical for that character um, and again the emotional journey of all the characters is so important and even his emotional journey he's a supporting yeah. character but you see the pain in his life and the hope in his life and the um, you know the small joys in 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 such a clear and powerful way the way he the way he does his thing because he's so talented and he has he's just emanating um, you know this 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 good spirit. Well, maybe you're going to are very lucky. You definitely lucked out. Neil, this has been a joy once again. I can't thank you enough. And I can't wait till the next time I get to chat with you. Well, good. Me too. Um, thank you for your questions. And um, until the next time. Thank Thanks you. so much, Neil. Bye-bye. All right. And that was Neil Berger, director of The Marsh King's Daughter. I love the film. It is a great slow burn. It is in theaters. Check it out. Um, now, if you've been listening, you know we're having a serious phone crisis here in Whittier. Every phone in the entire building is out. So, my wonderful talent have been very gracious and patient. And uh, our first talent, Aaron Murtaugh, and then Nick uh, <clears throat> Pizzillo is going to come on in a little bit. We're use they're dialing into my cell phone, so I'm going to be holding the cell up to the microphone so you can hear everything, because that's the best we can do with a landline phone system. So, Aaron, are you still there? I'm here. Yeah. Hello, Aaron. Welcome, welcome. So you said you like a little drama. We got a little drama for you. Yeah. Let's go. Let's go. Let's make it work. I like it. Well, one thing that I like is your short film, your first directorial, Man Baby. This is so, it has a creepy thriller vibe that I just love. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. What led you to this story? Because you not only have written it, directed it, but you star in it as as this man baby himself, um, which is really yeah. it truly is creepy is the word, Aaron. I got to tell you, um, and you can't look away from this. It's a short, but you can't look away. So what is it that prompted what started this for you? Oh, well, my wife got pregnant. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that, you know, I, I love, I love a scary movie. I, um, 
a, a lot of things were, were kind of coming together when the project was in development, like while I was trying to think about what to do next and the idea of writing something for myself and exploring that kind of work where I'm directing and acting um, just felt exciting and also kind of scary. Um, so I kind of wanted to just build a project that was already, you know, pretty close to my experience. And I found that while my wife was pregnant, it just was an amazingly um, isolating experience. And I, I found that really scary. And obviously, you know, having a baby is kind of intimidating to begin with the first time. So there was that inherent kind of fear, but that was how the project kind of came together at first. And then my daughter was born and while she was a newborn, I found that to be an even scarier time. It also coincided with the pandemic. So there was kind of a lot going, a lot going on. Um, that's how the project came, kind of started. Wow. You just had a real convergence there of everything. Pandemic, pregnancy. Oh my God. First time dad, first time director. Wow. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. So I'm guessing you shot this in your house. Um, Well, you know, my daughter was born here in New York, actually, in February 2020, right at the start of the pandemic. And so my wife and I, by that spring, were just really worried about work, and it was so hard to have a a newborn. So we moved to Montana, where we had lived before, and we had some friends there who were like, you know, come back out. The caseload is so much lower. It's so much more feels so much safer here Mm -hmm. and so i i made the short there in montana and while i was there and my daughter was growing up i got to embed myself in an amazing film community there and um, i was awarded a a grant from the montana film office to fund the short Um, and then we yeah actually it's we filmed at, at an apartment these nice women let us kind of take over their house for a long weekend. Um, and we just made it look like a couple with a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm thrilled to hear you talk about Montana and Montana film office up there because Montana filmmaking, they start, it started slowly a number of years ago, uh, when LA film festival festival was still up and running and uh, Montana Film Office really started to have a presence showing up for LAFF. And then thanks to, of course, Taylor Sheridan and Yellowstone, Montana has just exploded uh, yeah. with, an inc- uh, with an incredible filmmaking system. Uh, and the talent up there is just immeasurable. So I think you ended up in a perfect place to make your first film. Now, yep, I'm very lucky, I got to say. You know, I got to work with all the best. Now, coming up, now your crew that you have, your cinematographer, Hallie Swain, your editor, uh, Rebecca Sagan-Cohen. Uh, now, did they 
were they talent in Montana? Yeah, Haley lives in Montana. I met Haley working. She was working as a camera assistant. Um, we actually, Deb, we all worked on Tokyo Cowboy. I saw you did an interview with. You worked with the yeah. boys. Oh my we all god! On that movie. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. So you know, I I I got to when I landed there in Montana Montana in 2020. I just kind of got to work on set doing all these features all these low budget features that were coming up there because of the caseload or because of the tax incentive various reasons um and just got to meet this amazing crew that are up there and i felt like the short was just a really exciting opportunity to kind of let a lot of that working crew step into department head jobs and work a little bit more creatively um haley is a really an amazing camera person she's a really interesting artist and it was a very cool experience working with her to shoot the movie wow well i just think that is absolutely terrific now i do have to ask you what did you do on tokyo cowboy i was the second ad very lovely working working with mark marriott very nice yeah, yeah, it was so cool. Okay, don't tell me that you're one of the ones that had to get thrown into the mud with the mud scenes. I didn't get it. <laughs> no, I didn't get in the mud. I was very busy in the trailer okay. of that base camp, making sure everybody was dressed appropriately to get in the mud. No, okay. I wasn't one of those. Lucky you. Lucky you. <laughs> that was very one smart. Of- one of the few, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so now, using now, did you do Tokyo Cowboy before or after you did Man Baby? It was right after. Okay, so now that means you're you were coming at Man Baby totally fresh as a director. Um, you didn't have the experience of a bigger crew behind you, uh, technically. So what was your approach as a director once you had your team put together? Did you shot list? Did you do stick figure storyboards as so many directors love to do? And I just think that's so charming. Um, You know, how did you approach this from a production standpoint? Um, Yeah, I, I love to storyboard. I studied photography kind of before I got into film. I'm a very visual communicator and visual thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were uh, there are so many factors at play, I think, in terms of how I approached it because it was amazing that I got a grant from the film office, but that really was all the money I could afford to kind of put towards the shoot. Mm-hmm. And um, there were some special effects elements there's a prosthetic <laughs> and there's some like we did some dental molds and stuff um and those were places where i thought it, it was really exciting to spend some money um but I, in turn we, we really only shot for three days it was a very very quick shoot mm-hmm. um and so a lot of the shot listing and i think some of those like larger directing choices were about 
just maximizing our limited resources and being able to um, shoot the story in as simple a way that's still dynamic and compelling to watch. Mm-hmm. We, we, I did, I went back almost like a, a six months later to shoot some pickups with Haley, like the shot that kind of flips upside down of the outside of their apartment mm-hmm. building. That was shot almost six months later. We and that's, that's an important was- shot, Aaron. That shot is very important to have that inverted upside down shot. Because it really says speaks volumes about what has transpired in the film. Yeah, you know, I think that I I I am such kind of a formalist visually. So, what was going on um, as we were, you know, we were going through the edit, and the movie just felt so still. It really is. I mean, it is a very quiet. There's almost no dialogue. In and very still kind of painfully slow observation of this Mm -hmm. character. But that, that was my biggest, um, you know, just kind of like, as I was settling with the edit, I really was feeling like there needs this, this, there needs, we need more movement. We need something more. It's such a big, um, you know, transformation essentially that she goes through. You know, so that was so cool to kind of come up with that shot with Haley and just run around in the snow in Bozeman and pick it up. I love that shot. I really do. Uh, you know, now, you mentioned the editing process. Editing is always so key. And here, this really is, it's a slow burn. It's very creative how you're approaching this, a very unique story. But as I said, it gives this creepy thriller vibe, which means you've got to build tension. And you do that, and you do it with your editing. What was this editing process like for you working with Rebecca to find your pacing? Because even though it's a short film, there is still a definite pace that is established. Yeah, thanks. Becky is a genius. She's a, she is not in Montana. She is based in L.A. She's a friend of mine from film school, from CalArts. Um, and I, I, I will say that I, something I think that's really interesting, Becky has an amazing sense of humor and she knows me kind of as a longstanding friend. Like we have a, a very friendly laughing relationship. Mm-hmm. So when Becky came, I, I was kind of working on the edit on my own and I really felt like it was just too much to be cutting my own performance and the story. And so when Becky came on, she just brought such a great sense of humor to like how she was looking at this guy's plight. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's places where there's like a little bit of comic relief. There's these couple moments that are meant to be a laugh. And that I think helps really construct the tension of the movie because when you divert into comic relief it sets up the audience for more suspense and being they're just made more comfortable and more willing to kind of keep following the story into somewhere that's scary or dark or Mm -hmm. uncomfortable absolutely so now the big question here though is how well did actor aaron take direction 
from director Aaron? <laughs> amazing question. That I I, I got to say I, it's it was an amazing challenge. Um and I feel like I just learned so much and I have an even greater respect for so many other filmmakers who are actor directors and have that skill set to kind of be in front of the camera and behind. Um, it's a big part of why there's so little dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if I had to keep my mouth shut, we can cut some, cut some cool, cool images together. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, would you want to work as a director? Would you want to work with this guy, Aaron, again? I, I'm going to give him one more shot. We want to develop the project into a feature-length story, which is a much kind of bigger scope and that the the dad character. Um, goes through essentially an even bigger, more complicated transformation. Um, so I, I'll, I'll give him another shot. He would he would love to work with another director. <laughs> <laughs> but see, I was going to ask you: Do you have plans to turn this into a feature? Because this, to me, it screams feature film. Yeah, yeah. That was always the part of the I idea was that I could uh, apply to this grant program in, in Montana and work with my friends and make a short film that was, you know, that kind of was setting up a larger project and we would figure out how to put, put that together later. It, it's been so fascinating to, have to cut the film, cut the short and kind of, you know, figure out what is working and what is this really strange and unique tone that's kind of eerie and suspenseful and thriller, but still a little bit weird and funny. Um, and just see how that is informing a lot of how I think about the feature and what, 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 what it'll be like. Now, have you written the feature yet? There's a treatment. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm just trying to gauge here how long it's going to be before I get to see this feature film based on this. Oh, I'm working on it. I'm working. I'm trying. <laughs> you know, we, it really was a, such a long edit on the short. I would love to um, just feel like I have a, a lot more clarity around what the feature is doing and what that story is. And so we could shoot back in Montana and have a, a, a movie done a lot faster. Mm-hmm. What was, for you as a first-time filmmaker, first-time director, an actor-director, what is, what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker and storyteller in making Man Baby, the short film, that you can now take forward into future projects, be it as an actor, be it as a director? Um, you know, I think the biggest lesson for me really was that act, like actor, it's, it's that word, act. It's action. It's about doing things. I, I, I can still, you know, I, I lived in LA for a little while and I went to an acting studio and I can hear this teacher screaming at me, move, 
because I would just <laughs> sit on the stage and start reciting the lines and everything. And I think it was so cool to see a lot of things from from film school about projects I did while I was in film school purely as a director and and other, you know, these other elements of me as I've explored acting more coming together in a way that, um, you know, there's just an almost endless amount of work to do because if you just kind of rest on your instinct and what feels good or what feels right, I think sometimes you lose the storytelling. And the storytelling is a moving train that the audience like can't stop watching and part of that is camera movement and part of that is staging the actors part of that is just motion in the performance it's the emotional movement of the character's psychological state um so i mean i i'm so excited to get to do that again and work on the project in a larger scope and just kind of bring that sensibility more to life. Oh my God. Well, I'm excited to see the next endeavor, the next step of man, baby, because I love what you've done here with the short. So I see all your vision. You understand all the moving parts of making a film. So I really want, I can't wait to see you expand that. I just think it's going to be, I think it's going to be fabulous. I'm going to pass out. It's so cool to talk to you like a stranger about my work. It's just such an amazing thing that you do. Oh, well, thank you. Unfortunately, because of our screwed up phone system today, I have to let you go now so that I can bring Nick on, who's frantically beeping on the phone, and I don't know how to, like, take two calls at one time on my cell phone don't ask me this is what happened but you have to come back on the show when the phone is working because i really want to go in depth with you about your acting philosophy because it i really love it i really love it i'd love to anytime oh thank you so much aaron thank you so much and thank you for being so understanding with our technical crisis today Oh, thanks, Aaron. (laughs) Thanks. Okay, and that was Aaron Murtaugh, director, actor of Man Baby. Now, here he is. All right, here he is. The fat, I have, sorry, Nick, I have not yet figured out how to have one call on and another one on hold on my cell phone. Um, (laughs) This is what happens when you get old. Um, these things just escape you, but I am, I am so thrilled to have the incredible Nick Pazillo joining us, editor extraordinaire. And I don't use that term lightly. You, let me tell you something, Nick, you have blown my mind. First, I saw Butcher's Crossing and which is one of the most beautiful movies I have seen this year. I was mesmerized. I love the story, the character studies, and what you do editing-wise, which we'll get into in a minute. But then I see your lucky day. 
cut by the same man. Two totally different films, totally different kinds of perspectives, equally as interesting. I, you, you just won me over completely, Nick. You've won me, you've won me over completely with your skills. You are an editorial storyteller. There is no doubt about it. I, I appreciate all that. Jeez. Wow. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I, I don't know. It's like, uh, I, I was never good at taking compliments, so I will remain <laughs> as such. <laughs> yeah, I'm no good at that either, so I understand completely. But I have to give them to you because your work in both films is just exemplary. Um, and because of the varying nature of these two films, uh, the first big question I have for you is, how do you decide what project to take? What is the determining factor for you in saying, yes, I'll come on and edit the film? Oh, that's a that's a great question. I, I'm still in my, I guess, kind of career infancy as when it comes to to movies and long form films so I, I think at some point it'll be more relevant in the sense you know of how picky or or not to be um but you know i think in the past couple of years it's been you know the, the answer is yes you know am i <laughs> you know because you can't you can't get the things unless you do the things and right um and these uh, luckily you know these two projects um, you know, came from good creative sources. So, like, you know, uh, your lucky day being—I mean, one of my best friends that I've grown up with for a long time—is uh, the, the the director, producer, writer, and and uh, Butcher's Crossing came through. You know, uh, trusted creative channels that you know the director was able to find me, and and uh, it just so happened that you know we were able, our timing worked out, and. You know, I, I was like, you know, Nick Cage. Yes. You yeah. know, I mean, there's, I, you know, I, I don't, I, I, and so I, I, you know, I think that it'll be nice at some point to be able to, to be more picky, but I, you know, when, when the time, when the time's right, but I think that this, you know, right now I'm, I'm just happy to, to do creative projects with, you know, with, uh, creative people. Yeah. Well, you know, let's break let's break each of these down here. Let's let's start with your lucky day. Because I actually the composer Matt Hutchinson was just on the show last week because you weren't feeling well. Oh, so awesome. you and you and Matt got swapped out. So Okay. So Matt came, was on last week instead of today and you're here today. Um Glorious Matt. And then I and I yeah. talked to Dan in between. Uh and Number one, he loves your work. He loves Matt's work. But, you know, I got to question this poor guy. He zings both of you with, hey, it's kind of a horror film, but let's make it Christmassy. Um, <laughs> that's, you know, I don't know who it was more difficult for, Matt or for you. Um, because I, I would say, yeah, I would definitely say Matt. Matt. <laughs> Because it's like that's you know visually we can come up with as many different you know uh, visual references for that as as you know based on what's shot. There's a lot of we did do a lot of additional little sound design touches 
Athens, there's some little touches of bells in some places, mm-hmm. and, and uh, just, you know, how much is too much of a reminder for Christmas, um, and then, uh, but for Matt, man, yeah, you know, he, he, he had a test, because, you know, not only is he working on, you know, on just trying to make a cohesive score that emotionally, you know, resonates with everything that's going on you know it's also of like okay but it needs to have this holiday vibe which he killed i mean he just did so good and it, and it and you know i i've never heard a a dark you know christmas song like he's made yeah in, in a lot of the, the sections of this movie it's, a, it's it's pretty awesome but what's so fantastic is your editing in telling this story is what makes that music. It's a perfect marriage. Oh, thank you. Because yeah. you're, I mean, yeah. you're building the darkness. I mean, you've got Justin's great cinematography. And oh, yeah. I'm curious how much of a problem, if a problem at all, uh, it might be a, an embarrassment of riches, when you're shooting in a, lo- a contained location like this mini mart, uh, and you've got all these aisles, and you've got the camera going around corners, people are hiding in corners, hiding in refrigeration units. Um, you've got a lot of close-ups, not extreme, not extreme close-ups, but close-ups. Uh, but you're making use of every inch of this building, of this store. Is this a help or a hindrance to you, especially with a film like Your Lucky Day and the darker tone that it brings us? I would say, so the location wasn't as much of of an issue at all because, but time in the location might have been because, you know, it was a 15 day shoot, 15, maybe 15 and a half day shoot. So and all nights and so, any given scene, you they only shot so much and, I mean there was there's one in scene in particular that comes in a kind of a uh, a tense crux of the film that was they only had an hour to shoot it and it's got multiple characters in it and you know and uh, and some uh, complicated blocking and it's just like okay well we still got to make it work you know no matter what because we can't have excuses when it comes to people watching the movie they just they, they they're not going to be they're going to they're not going to care whether you had an hour or five days to shoot a scene it's does it work or not and um you know i think that even within those constraints you know we were able to find some nice magic in, you know it's tense magic in there but yeah i mean some things that that go to you know that helped us out was just the confinement right so you know and and you know when you see a look a new part of the store and how much of it you see and uh how much we're looking at you know the environment versus the characters in the environment it's you know it was uh it was a juggling match but uh it was it was great you know i think we i think we did you know as good as we could have with the material well you definitely you spun the film on a dime uh tonally because we open up yeah, we've got Spencer Garrett comes in as Mr. Laird. He's got his lottery ticket. He comes in grouchy, then he gets really happy. He's going to win $156 million. And, but then we have somebody lurking off in the corner. 
We have our young man, Sterling, who then, and in the meantime, we've got light. Everything is light and bright visually. You've got that, you know, the horrible fluorescent store lighting happening uh, against the, you know, dirty floor, you know, linoleum floor. So that sets a tone, but everything is open and it's bright. But then the minute we start seeing Sterling over against the wall playing with a roll of scotch tape and wrapping it around his head, you know, and the way you're cutting back and forth, you cut back and forth a couple times so we could see that, you, we know, uh-oh, we got a problem happening here. And then everything starts shifting. And you build that tension so well, Nick, that it just, and then slowly it dims down. The tighter we go into corners or pushing people into the back room or hiding in a bathroom or the refrigeration unit, things also get darker. Lights go off. Then we've got just a glow of a computer screen, things like that. And you are constantly, you know how to hold a shot. I got to tell you, you know how to hold on a frame so that it's like, we're wondering what's going to happen. Okay. Is the train going to hit somebody in one of the few exterior scenes? Um, What's going to happen inside? And you really hold and build that tension so well. So I'm curious about you and Dan working together. Did he leave you to your own devices to pace this out? Was he there with you? How did this work so that you could find these beats? Yeah, I didn't know. So Dan and I, Dan left me to my own devices for the initial cut. And then uh, we spent two weeks uh, in early 22, um, just kind of like held up in a, at a, uh, a house in Palm Springs together and waking up at seven in the morning to three 30 at night, just, <laughs> just dedicated hours, uh, to, to getting through, um, some of the first, uh, director's cuts, you know, rough edits. And, and, um, it was, a it was, you know, there's times when, you know, he had energy and there's times when I had energy, you know, to be able to kind of like keep the, the, the train rolling, um, no pun intended. Uh, but <laughs> the, you know, I think that, the, uh, um, I think the big thing was just trusting each other to, to know who, you know, how the scene wanted to be, what the audience was trying to, you know, was thinking at the time. There's a, I'll, I'll give Dan, uh, all of do so there's a scene where um one of the characters you know um jessica garza's character is uh kind of trapped yeah she's cornered at this point and and one of the um a, a police officer uh, uh from outside is is come is you know it's basically coming towards the store and the lighting setup in that was uh they shot it basically we're looking out of a window and there's just the lights being switched on and off mm-hmm. and and that scene was totally fabricated in post so like basically wow. there there was no light going on and off it was just you know camera shot through the through the glass uh from her uh, pov so that scene in edit 
was the timing of the light. So he had shot a reverse, you know, of some store elements that I, we could kind of like use as the reflection. So when the reflection, when the lights go up, you see the reflection inside the store. When the lights go down, you see outside the window. And so we could play with this, uh, the timing of when you see and what you don't see and, 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 and all that. And uh, I mean, to his credit, he had shot the elements what was left was like, okay, how do I make them work? Right. How do I, you know, what's the timing? What's the, you know, of the lights going on, going off, what, you know, feels the best, what's kind of gives you a bit of a jump when you see the thing that we want you to see, uh, finally. And, uh, you know, and it's kind of, you know, that was a really fun exercise in being able to just sit on a shot and not have to cut away or edit around it or, 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 you know, um, be too heavy handed. And so it was just, it was just, you know, that was a great fun moment. Well, I gotta tell you, you know, Jessica had a few really great moments in this film. Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, she truly, she had some of the best moments in the film. Um, you know, with the sprinkler and then, that other the other scene that you were just talking about um and what happens there i have to i have to say i jumped out of my chair watching it um <laughs> i did not expect that um so i mean you really give us some you know really good jump scares but by the same token you also stick with the storyline and this whole idea of you know money and winning the lottery and how that shapes you and how it changes uh, a person and their thinking because you also give us these slower moments when people are opining about what they might do or what they haven't been able to do. And throughout it all, this is one great thing with Jessica's character of Anna is that she loves to, as I said to Matt, and I think I said it, I said, no, I said it to Dan It's like she obviously watched a whole lot of episodes of Castle because when she jumps up and it's so what's the story? What's the story? And every time she does that with somebody, you hold on that shot, but then you have a pause to really let it sink in as to who's the one with the brains here. Um, And I love how you did that. I just love how you did that, how you utilize, you come in tighter with one of, with like a medium, a medium shot or a mid one shot on her. But then you just, you pause when she spurts that out. Yeah, she made it easy. I mean, she, she kills it in this movie. I mean, and kills many hits. and it's uh and it's very it was just i think the bottom line was knowing that you know if we want people to empathize with any of the characters they're gonna need to kind of feel them and put themselves in their shoes yep and and you know you're you don't have you know it's like in in the way any movie shot you're gonna have opportunities to be able to to play that up and play that down and with this, we just, you know, we really, on the moments that we could, we wanted to really emphasize, you know, what are the characters thinking? And not necessarily always tell you, but just, you know, let you 
watch them you know let let you kind of like kind of figure it out for yourself as much as you, as much as possible and um because that internal process going on is is what's so interesting from any viewer mm-hmm. watching a movie is yeah. is trying to figure out what something's think somebody's thinking and uh i relish in that and so i hope that yeah definitely trying to build those moments into this uh, as much as possible and and it you know with actors like you know jessica and angus and musa and, and elliot and uh jason Amar. i mean like you have all these people that are so good at what they do that you know Yes, they can say their lines like the best of them, but they can also just be in the in themselves, and uh, and still carrying the weight of the character. And uh, I, I want to, you know, definitely let that shine through when we can. And you really, you have really done that with your lucky day. Um, before we move on to Butcher's Crossing, though, I've got to ask you: Did you wait to see the entire? Uh, you know, the whole cut of your lucky day, uh, look at that, or were you getting dailies? So I played with some dailies while they were shooting, but it was such a fast shoot that I wasn't able to, to construct that, you know, as much as one would want. You know, I did a majority of the work after they they uh, they wrapped um, and, and then put the cut together in assembly, and that's what Dan and I then watched for the first time and then you know uh started refining from there wow well i love what you did you built attention the entire team dan you justin matt and the cast real i didn't know what to i didn't know what to expect when i sat down to watch your lucky day and boy oh boy was i so so excited to have watched it when it ended because it, you know, it's it, good. It's really it, good. It, you're reminding me of something I thought about the other day, too. You don't get this kind of opportunity too often with films where because you don't know these actors as as well, you don't know, like, you watch a film, say, with, Nick, with Nicolas Cage, and you know that if he's in the beginning, he's probably going to be at the end, right? Right. You know, and so, like, you know, you don't get, you, you kind of, you know, if they don't, if they subvert that expectation, then good on them. It's like uh, in in this, you don't know because you don't know, you don't have that much face time with them. They're not like huge celebrities yet. You're just, you, you know, you're trying to figure out. Okay, you you can be surprised at any moment, and it's a really kind of a nice thing because you can't find, you can't get that uh, too often in, in in movies. That is so true, and you mentioned the perfect example of that which is Nick Cage in Butcher's Crossing. Uh, and you're right. I mean, I think all of us would be heartbroken if we go into a Nick Cage film and there's no Nick Cage at the end. Uh, yeah, that was 10 minutes in, yeah. You know, I mean, that this is the Armageddon syndrome. You know, watching Bruce Willis die in Armageddon. Spoiler alert if people haven't seen that movie after all these decades. Uh, Armageddon. <laughs> but that was just such a shock because... We don't see the leading man die. He's still there. When you're the hero, you're the hero and you're there to the bitter end. That was really the first time a really a major superstar let his character, you know, doesn't make it. Doesn't make it to the bitter end. But he's and emotionally that it, it, it hits home. Oh. It hits hard. 
To this day, I cannot watch that film and not cry buckets of tears. Um, yep. But good job. So, but so you knew going in with Butcher's Crossing. Okay, Nick Cage is here at the beginning. Nick Cage is going to be here at the end. But it's everything in between. Spoiler alert. Oh, yeah, you know, it's Nick Cage. Um, Butcher's Crossing. Not only is it beautiful, it is mesmerizing. I was mes I was mesmerized watching this one. And so much of it is because of the panoramic landscapes that we get to see. David Gallego's cinematography. I don't envy you cutting this film because it had to be like, oh my God, an embarrassment of riches and you're going to kill somebody's darlings to cut this film. Because every frame, especially when we're out in the wilderness and then winter, every frame is gorgeous. Gorgeous. Oh, yeah. So how how do you approach a film like Butcher's Crossing? I mean, the, the biggest thing we were trying to get out of it was a mood. It was just trying to create the mood of, of, of what it feels like to be out into the, in the wilderness uh, you know, uh, you know, and, and stuck, you know, and not, not having, you know, you lose day and night, you lose all, all sense of time and, and, you know, and, and nature was a big part of that. So, you know, images of nature, how, what images are we seeing when, how do they, how are they playing off of the characters and what do they mean? Um, it's, you know, between, you know, going wide or going close, you know, you know, to a, a macro of, a, of an of an animal or a close close up of an animal or, or you know, it's like again, all these things need to mean something to the characters or to the audience somehow. And it was it was a it was a fun you know exercise and just trying to build you know a, a feeling uh, you know that that kind of carries you through the film and and there you know there's because there's moments of. I mean, true editorial exploration, you yeah. know, you know, in there where it, we're kind of, you know, playing with time and, and playing with what is happening versus what you think is happening. And, and so, um, yeah, it was, it was really fun. I mean, and, and I, I think that one of the biggest takeaways was just, you know, learning how much, again, it's like how, you know, how much you can watch a character, you know, really being in, the, in a you know in a in a in a close up or a medium shot and feeling that and versus you know a bunch of you know not needing a bunch of words to, to kind of telegraph the same thing. Yeah, I mean every every frame is just beautiful. But what I do love is that we have the ECUs primarily come into play um, with the buffalo with the bison. We see more of the yeah. ECUs. Uh, come into play with, you know, on an eye, on, you know, a, a, you know, a, a non-moving, non-breathing uh, bison just on the ground. And it really yeah. sends yeah. home, it makes you question Cage's character uh, and his, you know, his idea, Miller's idea of just slaughtering them all. To get every skin possible. And it really, it's a great subtextual commentary 
on man and nature. And I love how most of the ECUs are reserved for that. Uh, giving, yeah, pay, giving honor to those, to the buffalo and, you know, and to the, the actual, you know, history therein was uh, something that we definitely wanted to achieve. I mean, we didn't want to, you know, we didn't want it to just be like a, a Buffalo slasher film, right? We wanted it to be, you know, we wanted there to be some power in, in, and, and even some like uncertain, like just kind of like making you feel uncertain about them and, and, and just uneasy uh, um, that like they almost know more than, than we do. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like the kind of watchful eye of nature and, and a lot of that being through the bison. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a hard, it is a hard film to craft in that way. Cause you know, you're, you, it, it's a, it's a, it's kind it's a drama, it's a thriller, it's got, you know, a little bit of action, it's got, you know, but it's, you know, very heady at times. Um, and I think that's where I was like, you know, kind of like what I was talking about with mood is like trying to really build out a mood of, of how we wanted people just to kind of like be feeling it, you know, at any given moment while watching it. Mm -hmm. Well, and you take us through so many emotional notes uh, with the way, number one, the way it's storied, but then the way that you've cut it and to what becomes relevant, important. Some of the intimate campfire moments that are generally explosive, and that's something I've I noticed within the film. Whenever we have fire, there is some something about man versus man in human nature that is explosive and raging, just like the fires are, be it a campfire, be it one in town. And I love that metaphor. I absolutely yeah. love that. Uh, and the way those I'm shots... Glad you caught it. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're... You're, you're right there with us in the editorial room. <laughs> you're, you're having conversations with us. It's great. You know, and the distancing during the winter. They should be huddled up together, and yet they're trying to put as much distance between each other as they can um, because they are very frigid and frosty to one another. And it's really it's interesting to watch that. And that comes through the pacing you know, it comes through David's camera work, the cinematography, but also your pacing for and what angle you're giving us. Because obviously you've got some coverage shots happening here. So which way do yes. you go? Who are you going to show us? And yeah, it's, it, it was it, it was a it was a very I mean, a lot of the. Um, the material again this film was shot in 18 days oh my god so, oh yeah so they i mean everything that they got was like you know a one especially for any 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 material that was outside of the actors was a one you know i mean they got in one and we were lucky to have and the uh you know as far as like you know the actors go they had you know two cameras on on some scenes which was great and they you know we were able to maximize you know the takes in that, that way uh i think that that again as far as the cast goes i mean they were always on and i couldn't 
you know, I, it was hard to find stuff, you know, any materials that I would, wasn't able to just really rely on between everybody. Uh, and, you know, Nick, and Nick Cage, is, you know, he carries so much weight anytime he's on screen. And, he, and yeah. he's the, the true Ahab of this, of this film. And, you know, and Fred, to the opposite of that, is like he is so eager and naive in the beginning. And then, you know, just be, it's like he's almost in shock for the mm-hmm. rest, you know, at, at the reality they're in for the rest of it. It's a, it, it's a really nice dynamic, you know, changes of, of where they start and where they, you know, and Nick, I mean, his scare, I mean, I, you know, the, the hope is, it's like he's kind of is that fire. You know, you kind of like, the embers burning is it's that, the the aggression and, and underlying pressure that, you know, he's putting on everybody. Uh in the film and most of all that he's that that miller is putting on himself with this goal to get the more pelts than anyone has ever gotten uh you know it the whole thing it is a great pressure cooker and you maintain that pressure and you build it so by the time we get to winter and we go through all the seasons so we really get to see how nature changes and how man deals with the elements. And the elements really do, you do keep them, even in the edit. You could very easily have shut them out to a larger degree, but you don't. You, you hold, you give us those panoramic shots. You don't encroach on those. We really get to see the vastness. We get to see the hardship. Uh, we get to see the danger and the disaster uh, that comes. And, you know, it's, you know, you're anxious with each thing that happens. And I think we can thank Taylor Sheridan for a lot of this because of what he's given us through Yellowstone in 1883. Um, People have a much greater sense visually of the dynamics and the dangers of the wilderness at this point in time. Montana is a beautiful and dangerous place it is it is insane yeah that whole part of the world is a is just it, you can't you know you can't look around without seeing some vista or valley or whatever with you know it just is striking uh I, I love it well now did you have with this film did you have the benefit of dailies or did you get all the footage when the when gabe was done with the film it was when it was done. I, I wasn't brought into this film until after it was shot, and uh, and because they they were looking for an editor, um, they shot I think around the same time as actually uh, you're lucky to edit <laughs> at the end of, of two yeah twenty one. And so I did a first couple passes with Dan on your lucky day, and then this project came in, and I was like, and I, and I jumped over to it, and. Uh, cut it and then went back to your lucky day you know uh you know dan dan and i were were I, it actually was a benefit because you know we were able to take time away and and uh and have some perspective mm-hmm. which is, you know that's one thing that really low budget indies have you know versus you know mid-sized films right. or big budget films is they have they have time because you know it's 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 there's no money. And That's so you, right. You know, and so you, you kind of, uh, you, but that time allows for you to, 
really work out the kinks and uh, and and make the best best thing you can. You, you really have no excuses then because you you know your every decision is something that we've we have talked about and Dan has you know you know has decided on it. You know mm-hmm. without the idea of spending crazy amounts of money to reshoot or this that and the other thing which again other films that are bigger you know are able to afford sure now what would you say was the most challenging aspect of editing butcher's crossing i would say the time i mean because it was you know shot quickly and then it was we didn't have that much time in post you know we were we it was like maybe two months two and a half months to to cut it um wow and you know and 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 so we were very you know it was just from the get-go it was you know we were making you know very very big decisions and you know in a in a, in a confined space in a confined amount of time and that's you know that's never easy that you know because you want to be able to saturate and sit and and test things out and uh you know play for test audiences see what they're thinking how they're reacting um i think for directors like you know gabe and like dan and and they want to they have ideas in their head of what they want the film to be and how they want it to play for an audience and sometimes without being able to test it we didn't do testing for either of these you know, without being able to test it, you are have, you're kind of, you know, you're just trusting your gut and you're mm-hmm. trusting, you know, what is the film that I want to see and how do I like it? And, and you know, we, we sent out to friends and, and family and whatnot, but we never, you know, we're in the theater together sure. with, with groups of people to, to really, you know, see what, how the films are feeling in that way. And, um, you know, we're, just, I mean, we're really, really stoked now to see what the responses are but it's it's a very um i think the time is is great in that way to have just some to be able to to make educated decisions you know that Mm -hmm. that where you know because you can't always know what the questions that people are going to ask uh and how you know something at the beginning can really affect something at the end and on you know for instance like on butcher's crossing for the beginning we you know we had one question come up of like fred's character um i think people expected people uh, on early viewing some of the people that we sent the the edit out to they were one they were kind of questioning his you know did he was he did he have something up his sleeve was he hiding something and we didn't and, and we were like whoa where is this coming from you know, whereas, you know, they, there's a whole plot line being developed that isn't, wasn't written, wasn't <laughs> shot, you know, and, and, you know, okay, so what do we do with this? What, how do we, how do we subvert the audience's natural instinct here to kind of expect something that isn't going to get fulfilled? And the, the solve for that was the voiceover at the beginning it was just coming up with a, um, something that he could say in earnest that feels like it was in earnest so it's like a, a letter to it you know to, uh, to his dad mm-hmm. um about about his intention about you know something that he was hoping to get out of this thing and so and that seemed to do the trick you know uh of a 
of then people weren't watching him with like this kind of, oh, what's, you know, what's he going to do in the third act that's going to, you know, right change everything, you know, for his character. It's, you know, I think the power of the dog uh, was like weighing heavy in any, everybody's like uh, recent consciousness of like a character hiding something for an entire film and then revealing it in the, in, in, you know, at the, at the end, I think that the, that was, uh, something that we had to solve, you know, because, you know, we didn't have that turn at the end, you know, his character's pretty straight, you know, when it, yeah. when it, after, after the, in his initial, his initial turn, you know, in, in the middle of the film. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, that was a big, a big, a big kind of, uh, issue that came up that we need, you know, and there's a lot of that stuff. Cause again, what you don't know what people are going to have what information they're getting and what they're putting behind that information while they're watching it. Unless you, you know, are able to find that out in some way. Mm -hmm. Now, how much of this film ended up on the cutting room floor? Cause there had to be some beautiful moments that you, you had to cut out. Oh, there's always things. <laughs> I mean, I think that the, the stuff that the only stuff that we, we cut was, Stuff that that didn't help the characters, uh, or 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 was almost like counter to what the characters' through lines were, um, and you know because the film becomes it's like in the writing process you have you know you you think this is going to connect to this to this to this uh, as you watch it, but then all of a sudden something that you had shot now that it's being played doesn't you know maybe it was more subtext on the on the page and mm -hmm. it wasn't so so much of a of a specific thing that the audience would understand and so then it's it, it then it becomes a question that's raised in the audience's head that never gets answered and then they're quite they're they're you know and you don't want i feel like editing is is kind of like trying to choose which questions an audience is asking in any given moment um <laughs> and we're and and kind of like you know acting as as a funnel of that you know because you don't if the audience is asking a whole bunch of, of questions at the same time then they're going to get lost and they're and they're not going to enjoy the experience and so if they're you know but if it's if the questions that they're asking are controlled and 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 uh, they're able to and they're in you know they're interested in in, in what the answers are going to be then I think you're doing it right and 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 so sometimes these little like I guess sentences said without a period or a or you know with just a comma and you know make the audience like kind of you know take them down trains of thought that we don't want them to go on mm -hmm. you know we want sometimes you need it sometimes you need a period or an exclamation point mm. um you know and so yeah that, that was Stuff. Well, Nick, I can tell you, job well done on both films, as different as night and day, um, both wonderful films, and I recommend everybody can see them. You know, they're out right now. Yeah. They're on VOD. Yeah, they're, they're on VOD and theaters. They're all over the place, right, on digital. And Your I, Lucky Day is on VOD tomorrow, and uh, yeah. And, and Butcher's Crossing is already out there. So, yep. yeah, go check them. Yeah. And Butcher's Crossing, 100%. yes, it's even on Spectrum. 
pay, you know, VOD on Spectrum. Uh, so. All right. Oh, my God. Nick, I can't thank you enough. This has been so wonderful getting to speak with you about both films, Butcher's Crossing and Your Lucky Day. I, no, thank you. You have thank won you. me over. I am going to be on the lookout for your work in the future. And you have to come back on the show again, especially if the phones are working. I would love to. No, and, and only if the phones are working. Only, okay. <laughs> well, I'll make sure of that. We'll make sure of that. Nick, thank you, thank you so much. And hopefully we'll chat again sooner rather than later. Thank you, Debbie. Appreciate it. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Nick Pazillo talking about Butcher's Crossing and your lucky day. Um, Big thanks to Nick and big thanks to Aaron uh, and his film Man Baby to bear with us with our technical difficulties today, obviously due to the phone company. Quickly before we go, I have to mention a huge, huge, if you if you happen to have been born with us in, you know, I don't know, is Mevo working today? Oh, Mevo's working. Okay. So if you happen to be looking at this on the Adrenaline Radio Facebook page on my lovely tablescape today, I have this incredible book from TCM Kid Noir. Kitty Farrell and the Case of the Marshmallow Monkey by Eddie Muller, the Czar of Noir. It is adorable. It is a great kids book, but for all classic film fans, I don't care what age you are, you want to have this book. It's beautifully illustrated by Forrest Burdett. Um, Just spectacular. And a big thank you to... My good friend Sean at Larry Edmonds Bookshop, who got sent it off to me, and to the czar himself, my friend Eddie Muller, who gave me a beautiful inscription on the book. Great holiday gifts, people. And the book and the books are at Larry Edmonds Bookshop, and they do send them out. Uh, they will mail them if you can't come into Hollywood to the bookshop. So... That is more than enough time that we've had today. We have gone way, way over. We have dealt with technical difficulties. Uh, Hopefully they will be resolved by next week. Uh, At which point we are going to be talking about the job of songs next week. And I'm not quite sure what else yet. But it'll be something. Just remember, we've only got four more shows until BTL signs off for 2023. We have next week, and then we have three weeks in December. So stay tuned for what's coming up. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.